Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. I'm thrilled to introduce you to my incredible Roots of the Spirit podcast guest, Dr. Todd Allen. Dr. Allen is a special assistant to the President and Provost for Diversity Affairs and professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Dr. Allen received his B.A. in Communication from Geneva College, an M.A. in Rhetorical Studies from the University of Akron, and a Ph.D. in Rhetorical Studies from Duquesne University. A frequent presenter at colleges, universities, conferences, and community events, he has taught a variety of courses that promote the intersection of diversity, civility, and the liberal arts. In 2002, Dr. Allen founded the Common Ground Project, a community-based nonprofit dedicated to promoting an understanding of the civil rights movement. For the past 18 years, in partnership with the PNC Foundation, he has led one of the longest operating civil rights movement tours in the nation, Returning to the Roots of Civil Rights, which is the focus of our conversation today. A native of Beaver Falls, Todd and his wife Lynette have been married for 25 years and are the proud parents of their awesome son, Bryce, who is a sophomore at the University of Akron. Dr. Todd Allen, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. Thank you so very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Spirit. I'm, I'm honored and humbled to be here. So wonderful to get a chance to catch up with you. The social construct, race, racism, and other social justice issues that intersect. So with that being said, I also think it's neat when I'm speaking to my guests to talk about how we know each other, just because... The interesting aspect about me starting the podcast is I have this awesome network of freedom fighters and social justice advocates and scholars like yourself. Oftentimes, there's a unique story that accompanies how we met. Can you walk me through your recollection of our first time (laughs) meeting? Sure, sure. So as I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, I I lead these um, civil rights tours uh, of the South. I was on a a trip to to Memphis. In fact, it was the first time I took a group to Memphis. And we were feeling pretty good that we'd finally made it, you know, that far. And as soon as we pulled into Memphis, someone saw a sign for Little Rock and said, how come we don't go to Little Rock? And uh, so a few months later, I was coming back to Memphis for a conference. And I had never personally been to Little Rock. And so I didn't know what uh, was there to see and who was there to talk to. So I drove over one day, realizing that there was a visitor center. So I, I, I came for a tour and I had done some some research to see kind of where were the, the, the nine living at that time. And and at that point, I, I could not track down fully uh, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky. I wasn't sure if she was in the States, outside the States. Uh, but I but 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 I knew that last name tricky, and so I get this tour guide uh, named Spirit, uh, who's taking me on my tour, and you know she's very knowledgeable of the Little Rock Nine crisis and the students and all that they had experienced, and then we're up to it, you know, after that time period. But I glanced also kind of at her name badge, and I saw the last name on there said Tricky, and so I waited. I think it was near the end of the tour, and I said, "So Tricky, uh, do you have a?" connection to Minnie Jean. <laughs> and uh, and you were like, that's my mom. And I'm like, get out of here. Then I remember saying something like, so where does she live? And you're like, here in Little Rock. And I got even more excited. And I was like, is she home? And you're like, no, she's out of town. I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, I said, well, here's who I am. Here's what I do. 
uh, I'd love to talk to her about this tour I do and having her part of it and coming to Little Rock. And um, and then I waited. I didn't wait long, but I waited. And and then one day my cell phone rang. And as they say, the re- the rest was history. Benny Jean was on the other end of that phone. And, oh, that's and so cool. We've been connected and family ever since. That's so awesome. Because what I used to do, like when I would encounter somebody as awesome as you, if she was home, I used to literally call her. And then I'd be so excited. <laughs> and I'd be like, what are you doing? You just need to drive over here. Because we literally live five minutes away. So yeah. trust and believe if she had been home, you would have met her on that day. But I'm awesome. uh, I, pre- I appreciated it. I appreciated it. I would like to know about your personal journey. If you're open to sharing just um, sure. about your parents, where you're from, where you grew up and what your childhood was like. I, I was born and raised uh, in, in the North or, or up South, however you want to say it mm. in, uh, in in Western Pennsylvania, uh, just outside of uh, Pittsburgh, a city called Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. I like to joke and say there are two famous sons from Beaver Falls. Joe Namath is one and, and I'm the other. <laughs> um, but that's where I'm from. My mom is uh, is also from Western Pennsylvania, a little little town not too far away from uh, from Beaver Falls. And then my dad, though, was originally from Tallahassee, Florida. And uh, when he was a, a child, um, elementary school age, in fact, he, he his father and his mother moved uh, north to uh, Beaver Falls. And so pretty much that's, that's, that's where he grew up as well. I am one of six kids. I'm number three in line. So I, I like to say to my siblings, that means I'm the glue that holds the rest of the family together. Hello. Uh, but there are uh, there are four boys uh, and uh, two girls. I have two younger sisters, a younger brother, and and, and two older brothers. Uh, and we just, I mean, just always grew up in a, you know, I think a very good time, um, very close knit uh, family. You know, I think a great time to to be a young person. But I think you know, you also realize this would have been you know 70s, early 80s, and so while you know we weren't dealing with the Jim Crow. Uh, racism, I guess you can say, of of, of the 50s and 60s. Uh, we were still dealing with a more nuanced, I guess, version of it, you know, where, where we were from. Significant African-American population uh, in that region, but still a, a whole lot of, you know, those first that, uh, that, that still have yet to happen in, in that part of the country. I mean, we, we've come away, but we still got a way to go. So when you were describing growing up or where you grew up, you said up south. Can you elaborate mm-hmm. on that? Yeah. Well, you know, I think especially when we're talking about race and racism, people want to isolate that to a certain region of the country, particularly the southern part of the the United States. Uh, And they always want to talk about down south this and down south that. Mm -hmm. I hear that a lot from people here in Pennsylvania, many of whom have never even been to the south, but they could tell you about it. Right. And I'm thinking I've been to places in the south. And, and and while it's while it's not heaven, it's not the hell that you think it is. And the, there are things that have happened in the South that have down South that have yet to happen up South. And uh, I remember uh, listening to a Malcolm X speech um, and he talked about, well, you know, as long as you're South of the Canadian border, you're South. And wow. so when I talk about down South and up South, uh, I'm, I'm reminded that uh, racism uh, and that legacy of racism in the United States isn't limited to by geography. In the first few episodes of the podcast, I really want a good foundation of what racism is so that when we're talking about it, we have a really solid frame. Can you please articulate what is racism? You know, I'm very familiar, of course, with, you know, the popular definitions, you know, that racism is 
prejudice plus power. And, and you know, then people want to do a little sideline and get into, well, can this group be racist or that group be racist? You know, I, I think what's important for people to understand is that, yes, while people can can hold, you know, stereotypes and people can hold prejudices and, and biases, if you will, and, and we've all got those, there's that structural component, that power dynamic right. uh, to racism. You know, it's one thing to have this belief, racist belief, you know, in terms of your superiority of one race, you know, uh, against another. But when you have then the power to enforce those beliefs on people and and by power, uh, you know, in terms of policy, power in terms of hiring decisions, power just even in terms of benefiting because you're included. You know, often we talk about racism and its ability to exclude people. And it does. It does that well. Right. But if somebody's getting excluded, somebody's also getting included. And 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 there's a power that comes from that inclusion. So I often hear people say, well, I can't be racist because I have no power. Uh, well, you've got this thing called privilege, and that's a very powerful thing to have. Um, I think, unfortunately, as a country, race is one of those issues. First of all, it's, while it is indeed a biological myth, it's a, a, a very present social and economic reality. Um, you know, I think sometimes people want to dismiss it and say, well, race is just a myth. Yes, biologically it is. But there are social, economic, political implications uh, of it. You know, one of the things I, I encourage people to, two things I encourage people to check out. One is to read uh, Ibram Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning. And then another is to watch the documentary Race, the Power of an Illusion. You know, if you want to understand the damage that race has done, done to us in this country and continues to do to us. Those are those are two really good places to begin. I mean, of course, there are countless other sources as well, but two really good, helpful, helpful sources. That's awesome, especially because although the premise of the podcast is to have honest conversations, the follow up and the action piece is to have tangible resources that we can refer to. So that's totally awesome that you recommended those two sources. Well, you know, you can't have honest conversation uh, if you're not informed. Uh, I think it was Terrence, right? Roberts, actually, who I, who I heard, you know, say that, that in order to have this true dialogue, that we've got to have an informed historical perspective. And to get that informed historical perspective, you've got to lean into some conversations that as a country, that as individuals, that as families, we've often not wanted to lean into. And that's the conversation about race and racism. That is so poignant. Then how do we know? How do we know if we're informed or not? Well, you know, I think I think informed is one of those things that's ongoing. You know, like somebody asked me one time, uh, how will we know when we've achieved our commitment to diversity? And I compared it to graduation. I said, you know, we accept students here uh, at this college and at colleges all over the land. And after a certain period, they walk across the stage and they receive uh, a degree. Does that mean learning has stopped? Heaven help us if it, if it, if it means that. No, it hasn't. <laughs> this phase of learning has ended, but learning is ongoing. And so is that informed historical perspective. Just when you think you know something, you realize there's much more to know. And it's about knowing more than just your story. You know, the civil rights movement, particularly of the 50s and 60s, um, as it relates to African Americans. Americans is an important story to me, but that's not the only story. There are other stories out there. And so when you start thinking of all of the different stories that are out there, you can see uh, where getting that informed perspective is, it's, it's a life's work. One of the things about um, me taking this journey is I'm learning as I go along. So I really thank you for adding that to my understanding and toolkit because I'll carry that lens forward with me. Well, I think I think we're all learning and we're all teaching as we go uh, as well. To me, that's that's the beauty of teaching is realizing what you don't know and getting excited about the idea of knowing and trying to excite others to know whatever the subject is. 
now with the new information that you gave me, I want to be able to get my audience the resources that we need in order to have these informed conversations. So thank you so much for that. In my experience with having crucial conversations or facilitated dialogue, there's one question that seems to really get the conversation going, regardless if you're in a multicultural group or in a group that's predominantly one makeup or another. Can you recall the very first time you became aware of the color of your skin? You know, I think I was kind of always aware, but in in, in, in terms of uh, aware that that made a difference and a negative difference or negative perception in somebody's mind, oh, I can, I can remember the moment, several moments, you know, but one that, that stood out as I, as I think about that question, probably somewhere around 10 or 12, between that age. Now, this wouldn't have been the first time again, like I said, that somebody negatively responded to me because of my, my, my race or my skin color. But somewhere between the age of 10 and 12, playing Little League Baseball. And I, I was on this team. Um, you know, I think we had maybe three or four African-American players on the whole roster. But we had a great coach, a great head coach. Uh, and one of those people, you know, I'm not going to belittle it and say that he didn't see color. Cause I hate when people say that. But your color what was not looked upon as a, a, as a less than or as a negative. And he did not tolerate any of that kind of foolishness. He did not. There was another coach, an assistant coach on that team who had a, had a son on the team. And I remember distinctly during the preseason, just one day at a practice, I don't know what was on his mind or his heart, just fellow young man, but he decided he was just going to haul off and, and call me and, and my couple of my colleagues a uh, nigger. And I knew, you know, I, I, I've, I've not always been one who's nonviolent. <laughs> and I, I knew if I hauled off and pounded that boy right then and there, that would cost me, so I must have been 12, so that would cost me my last season on the, on the team. And I really liked being on that team and I really liked that coach. And so I did not, I did not at that time do anything. That was probably like March, March or April, but I didn't forget. And I remember we got to the end of that season about August. He had forgotten, but I didn't forget. And we got to that last game. And when I showed up that day, I said, you know, I remember what you said to me. And I said, we're going to handle this when this season is over in about two hours. <laughs> and just as each inning went by, I kept saying, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. And, you know, you know, usually in sports, when you see teams fighting, it's like two opposing teams. Mm-hmm. Very rarely see one person, you know, beating the snot out of uh, another player on their on their team. <laughs> but I, I, I wore that boy out. I wore that boy out when, when that game was over. And, uh, you know, it's totally shocked my, my coach. Um, he was also my basketball coach. And, uh, you know, and I think initially he was a little offended and appalled. Was he aware of what happened? He was not aware of what had happened. Because uh, I was like, I'm not going to tell him because I wanted to handle that thing, you know. And I was like, he, he won't let me handle it how I want to handle it. <laughs> and uh, But after, you know, the thing settled down, the dust settled, I guess you can say literally, uh, he asked me why I did that because that was so out of character. And I explained what that young man had, had, had said. Now, he did not he did not condone or endorse me doing what I did, um, but he didn't condemn it either. But it was just like... Yeah, you know, you can have uh, what appears to be an integrated team and an integrated sport, um, but those hearts are still hardened. You know, do I look back now and regret what I did? No, I, I don't. I, I really don't. Do Do I think beating the daylights out of him um, was going to help him to come to some racial understanding? That was that was not my concern then. 
Uh, and it's really not my my concern now. I mean, yeah, it could have hardened his heart even further, but maybe I saved the boy's life and he, and he realized, well, if I'm thinking this stuff, I better not say it. Because if, yeah. if somebody is calm and easygoing as him will jump on me, who knows what other people might do. Still remember, I still remember that. And that has been, oh gosh, you're talking uh, like 30 something years. But one of the reasons I remember his face is I still have that picture of that team. I still keep that picture of that team. And that's one of the reasons I think I keep that picture is because, you know, again, on the surface, sometimes pictures can be deceiving. On the surface, you see a, a roster that looks pretty integrated. Mm-hmm. And you look like people are getting along. And, and for the most part, we did. I want to be fair. I don't want to paint all the rest of my teammates, uh, you know, with that that broad of a brush. Right. But but I always know that just beneath the surface, there are those those lingering issues of, of racism and bigotry. Now, again, I'm not condoning that, you know, folk go out and take matters in their own hands and, and, and beat down some folk. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but but I'm not going to lie and say that, that didn't feel good. You know, that felt good back then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing so hard because I do know firsthand, like you have the most calm demeanor and it's just like even more colorful. It's completely out of character. Uh, and even more so now. I mean, I would, I would never now. physically beat somebody down. Now, now I might try to ver- verbally beat you down. Hey, but there is always that. Don't, don't test me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I, oh, that's hilarious. So thereafter, what did that moment teach or mean to you? Um. Uh. You know, I, I, I said, it, you know, it means something in the that I still remember that. Um, like I said, it, it, it taught me, you know, there are better ways to handle disputes. I mean, the 12 the year old me and the 49 year old me wouldn't wouldn't handle those things in the in the same way. But at the same time, though, I, you know, I, I want to be clear, uh, you know, sometimes people think, oh, well, you just sound angry or you're hostile or, uh, you know, r- racism uh, is an ugly thing and it ought to make you angry and it ought to make you hostile and it ought not just make the people who are targeted by it angry and hostile. It ought to make people angry and hostile and want to do all they can uh, to eradicate it. You know, anger and just that feeling that lives inside of your body. I was uh, facilitating a speaking engagement recently for my mother and it was for a change makers event. And the person who was organizing it was really interested when I use the word rage. And he said, he was saying that rage needs to be a part of the conversation. And so I'm curious your thoughts on that. No, it does. I mean, like I said, you know, I think we think, uh, you know, this idea of of reconciliation or the beloved community, if you want to use King's word, is all of this. Somebody gave an apology, no, no matter how deep it really was and then somebody forgave and then we all hold hands and we and we move on but this is a process that you've got to that that you've got to go through and you know dealing with the rage or the anger uh the hurt is part of that but see people we want to skip over that we want to skip over that because it doesn't fit the the nice neat narrative of you know we have overcome and it, and it makes people like i said you know it makes people you know fearful to want to talk about you know the, the anger and the hurt and the pain um but if you're going to move towards uh true reconciliation and that's not a one time act either um right, you've got to deal with the anger the rage and the pain and the hurt you know just think about any relationship gone in a negative direction um you you know, if you're going to, you know, people just want to say, get over it. If you're going to get through it, you've got to confront all those, 
all those issues. And, you know, but I think, you know, also I, 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 I do a lot of teaching in interpersonal communication. And I say to people as well, you know, and again, I'm not saying forgive and forget, but, you know, one of the things I, I, I have to wrestle with myself is I said, how do you move move forward, even with the rage that you may rightfully have, knowing an apology is never going to come, an apology that you're owed, an apology that you're due, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, that person is never going to apologize to you. How do you still move forward? And there's no easy answer uh, to that, but you've got to, you've got to move forward because otherwise you're just holding yourself back. But it's then how do I channel that? That, that rage and the things that are constructed. You know, that's the very first time, and I have a background in, in interpretation and in how a, a message can be delivered with analogies and just different techniques. And that is the first time that I've ever heard the frame of relationship, you know, using uh, interpersonal relationships, whether it's with family or a loved one, as a metaphor for what has been inflicted with the deep-rooted systems of racism in this country. That's very powerful. Well, I mean, you know, at, at the heart, I mean, again, I guess this is my communication background, but, 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 but at the heart for me of human existence is relationship. And, you know, just even back to who do we determine and how do we determine who is a human and then who is a citizen? And, and do we have categories of humanity and categories of citizenship? And uh, are we putting structures in place that bring people together, proximity to one another in relationship? Or are we putting strategies and policies and, and, and practices in place that drive people apart? You know, and you'd asked me earlier just even about, you know, what racism is. And, you know, at it is, you know, at the, at the core of it for me uh, is this belief that there are some people that are more human than others. Are there some people that aren't humans at all uh, in this myth that, that we can then somehow rank and classify who gets to be a human being and who does not and who deserves relationship and who does not. So I guess we got to go back a tad to come forward. I'm interested in, you know, when you were going to school, high school, off to college, Mm -hmm. what your aspirations were. I watched a video with you as the keynote speaker, and you spoke about the fact that you did grow up learning about the civil rights movement, not only at home, but also at school. I found that really interesting. Can you describe your experience? As far as school, as it relates to to, uh, African-American, in history uh, in general and history of the civil rights movement in particular. I learned a lot of this stuff at home and in my church and, you know, that kind of community. Uh, but at school, particularly when I got to high school, um, ninth and 10th grade, uh, we had opportunities to take African slash African-American history. And so we started on the continent. And at that point, that was early 80s. And so we started on the continent and kind of ended with the Cosby show in a different world and kind of everywhere in between in that two year stretch. And, you know, when you grow up someplace and you only spend time in that place, that's all you know. So I thought every school system in the United States had opportunities for students to take courses like the one that that I took. And it was not until I got to college, my freshman year of college at Morehouse of all places, that I realized what a unique opportunity I had. Because I would be talking to my colleagues about 
the civil rights movement was a chapter that really stood out to me because I came of age in the era when the King holiday was becoming a national holiday. Uh, I had this teacher, Mrs. Potter, taught those classes uh, and her mom was a big NAACP person and they had done the March on Washington. And so, you know, one of the reasons I chose, or not one, the reason I chose Morehouse is because Mrs. Potter told me that's where Martin Luther King went. And I was like, well, that's where I got, that's where I got to go, right? So I grew up learning about this and I thought everybody did. And it was only when I would start to talk to, to friends first at Morehouse and then later when I transferred colleges that I realized the unique experience that I had, um, the importance to keep telling these stories. But even with that, never, never, never could I have imagined that one day I'd sit where I sit um, and have the ability to take people to the places where this history happened. Um, but then not only take them there, but give them opportunities to meet people and the descendants of the people who made this history happen. And so, you know, I never thought about getting into teaching, but I could not have imagined the opportunity and the opportunities I've been blessed with through teaching to learn myself, but then also to, to, to keep teaching others. Wow, that is such a unique experience. I mean, I can count on one hand or half of my <laughs> hand how special it was when I had that opportunity to get such uncharted knowledge that was not taught anywhere else. We didn't have a lot of teachers of color. And that's the other thing that that, that makes it surprising, too. I, you know, I should probably tell people that because when I say that, they probably think, Oh, you went to a majority black school or a majority black. No, it was a majority white school. Uh, I think it was a handful of black teachers. Um, you know, Miss, in fact, Miss Potter, uh, came to the teaching ranks through a lot of the student unrest in the seventies. And how come we're not represented in the curriculum? And, you know, while that was going on at colleges, it was also happening in schools and, and in communities. And our community was one of those, um, because there were, you know, school splits happening at that time. And so one of the ways to kind of quell the disturbance was, well, we got to hire some black teachers and let them teach some stuff. Mm. And so I came along at that right moment uh, in history. Had I come two decades before, I would have been too soon. Uh, and had I come along, like even in my son's time, he went to the same school, that opportunity is not there, not to the extent that it, that it was for me. And I've got to say one more thing uh, about about Mrs. Potter, though. So so I've been doing these, these tours now for 18 years. And uh, it was actually Mrs. Potter who encouraged me to do the very first one that I did. And she went on it uh, and she's gone on a couple. And I'll never forget when we were on one of the later versions of the, of the tour, she was talking to a reporter about her experience. And she said, and I'm standing there in earshot. She said, never could I have imagined when I was teaching this history in the 70s, 80s and 90s that one day one of the people that I taught this history to would bring me to these places to meet the people that I taught about. That gives me chills. Yeah. That's amazing. So I would love to hear your journey from this enlightenment, this wonderful information that you're getting excited about, and then Mrs. Potter encouraging you, just kind of take me on the journey to founding your own organization, The Common Ground, and your roots trips. If you can give me a broad overview and take me on the journey. So we're actually, this year is our 18th year of uh, doing um, civil rights uh, civil rights tours. There are, I believe, a couple of us in the country uh, who've been doing it this long. There's some who do, you know, more in a year, uh, but it's really hard for me to believe a little old guy from a small, small town in, in Western Pennsylvania uh, has this, this trip that's been going on for 18 years. Uh, but to be quite honest, 19 years ago, I didn't know there was such a thing as civil rights tourism. I mean, I had been to the King Center in Atlanta, and I had been to the Lorraine in Memphis, 
But, you know, what people have to understand is in the last couple of decades, there have been more and more sites and spaces that have come online. That as we've neared 50th and 60th anniversaries of things, there's more attention now and, and honor and recognition being given to this. There was a time when that wasn't wasn't the case. As far as the decision to to found my own thing, I, all I can tell people is, you know, it's amazing what you can do when you don't know what you don't know. Because had I known the work that it requires, uh, the legwork and the energy and the resources to do something like what we've been doing the last 18 years. I'll be quite honest. I, I probably would have been a little too intimidated to try. Well, I'm glad you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, I would have thought about all the things that, that, you know, kind of tell you why you can't do it and why it's difficult. But I didn't know what I, I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, we were fortunate that very first one that, that we were involved with, we were working for uh, one of our local politicians. This was kind of in the time frame of Clinton's dialogue on race. And this politician was, you know, committed to those kind of ideals. But, you know, part of not knowing what we didn't know, um, when we sat down and we budgeted for this first trip, we planned on, you know, 25 to 30 people going. Not once did we sit down and say, what happens if we get less? We got 13 people. Uh, but fortunately, this, this politician stepped in and, and helped us meet our financial shortfall. Uh, we had a great experience, uh, the 13 of us that went. But in honestly, in more ways than not, it was more of a failure than a success. And I thought that was a nice one-time project we tried, and I put it to rest. Uh, but all of the, the dumb things we did, and they were plenty, the smartest thing we did is we invited our local, our county newspaper to go. And they sent a reporter and a photographer, and they did a week's worth of coverage, front page every day, four pages, um, talking about what we were experiencing, but then also tying it back to the county. And uh, unbeknownst to me, one of my former students, one of my former college students, was working for a financial entity in Pittsburgh, and she had been clipping these articles about our experience. And she put together a proposal uh, to her to her employer and said, this is something they should support. And they turned her down. And then she retooled her presentation and pitched it again. And this time there was someone in the room from Memphis and someone from uh, Greensboro. And they said, have that have that man come in. And she called me and invited me to a meeting to talk about my annual tour. After said, she had put together an entire proposal? Yeah, after she had put together an entire proposal. And I turned her down. I said, I don't have an annual tour. And she says, no, 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 you're not understanding. <laughs> if you come to this meeting, you just might. And I reluctantly went. I almost did not go to that meeting. You're kidding. Because I was like, I wouldn't know what to tell these people. And I went. And, you know, to me, again, it's just the beauty of, you know, I talk about you know, Mrs. Potter saying, here's one of my students taking me where I never thought I'd go. Well, here was one of my students who saw something bigger in what I was doing that I didn't see myself. Amazing. And so that, you know, that organization then ended up, uh, has ended up becoming, you know, one of our chief sponsors, which has then allowed us to to dream big the last 17 of these 18 years. So, you know, there are no accidents uh, on this journey. Growing up learning about these folks uh, and then to now to count them as as friends and and family. You know, I I talked a little about the first time engaging in a, a conversation with your mom. You know, I was like, I was like a kid on Christmas when she called me <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I'm jumping up and down, but I'm trying to act all cool. You know, like, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, Dr. Tricky, this is, uh, this is Dr. Allen. And, uh, you know, but I'm like a kid at Christmas. Like, I can't believe one of Laura Knight is on the, you know, that in the phone. That's so and, cute. Uh, and, and so to be able to pass that same kind of joy and excitement uh, on the other people, really a lot of times I, I had a loss of words for it. I, I just say that, that, I, that I've been blessed to be, to be a blessing. That's so fabulous. You know what's so funny about what you just said about trying to act cool? You know, my mother, Minnie Jean, she's my mother. So yeah. 
even though I think she's amazing and I'm a big fan and I, I highly revere her as a human, <laughs> but also yeah. my mother and one of the Little Rock Nine, it doesn't really sink in until I'm around the other members of the Nine. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, Dr. Roberts. <laughs> so it's interesting how like I can totally relate, even though someone might look and be like, well, you know, you're around the civil rights community and you grew up with them. But I'm like, well, your mom is always your mom. Like, just like right. the Obama daughters are like, that's my dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's embarrassing sometimes. Right? <laughs> it's hilarious. I mean, obviously, that's a different, it's a totally different comparison. But in, not different in my eyes. <laughs> it's, not different, it's not different in my eyes, I'm telling you. So so one time I was on this this speaker series with your mom, which means I was there to carry luggage, right? And just kind of look. <laughs> Look, look pretty. But we were in Washington, D.C. Um, at Union Station. And she says, hey, I have to go over here to this vendor. They sell these commemorative coins, you know, people who've gotten, you know, medals of freedom and this kind of thing. She goes, and I always try to buy, you know, as many of the Little Rock Nine ones that, that they have, you know, when I'm when I'm coming through here. And so I said, OK, so we walk over and she says to me, you know, she says to the guy, you know, do you have any coins of the Little Rock Nine? And he says, sure. And he says, How many do you have? And I can't remember. But she basically bought all that he had and she never identifies herself. And uh, he says, uh, you, you must you must really like the Little Rock Nine. She goes, oh, I think those kids are badass. <laughs> and, I'm standing, and I'm just standing there cracking up like, this dude has no idea. He's standing here with one of the Little Rock Nine, you know, just so, and I wasn't going to blow her, I wasn't going to blow her cover, but I was just like, you know, there are these persons, well-known and not so well-known, that we pass every single day, who've got these amazing stories that have made the way better for, for our generation and the generations coming. Man, how, how so important it is that we get to hear these stories and these voices. So even like what you're doing with, with this podcast, what I'm trying to do with the tour, you know, what other people are doing in their own way, uh, is continuing to, to move those stories, those stories forward. Absolutely. That is so awesome. When you were telling that story, I'm literally mentally walking right there because I know exactly where that stand was. <laughs> I know exactly what the Little Rock Nine Congressional Gold Medal replicas yeah. look like. They were little green yeah. felt boxes. And we used to, every yeah. time we yeah. went to the Union Station, as a yeah. matter of fact, I've been doing a lot of traveling to and fro DC and I just I that stand has like a special place in my heart but that is so funny Dr. Allen can you give me a snapshot of where your journey takes you who you meet with and just a general overview of the experience you know the, one of the ways I, I describe the the experience I know people call theirs different things and I know people sometimes feel some kind of way about the phrase tour um, but, you know, whatever it is that we do, uh, it is an opportunity, I, I tell people, to engage living history uh, and to go to the spaces and the places where this history happened. And so, you know, we leave from, from Pennsylvania. The people that participate in my, in my tours come from all walks of life all over the country. You know, there's an annual trip that I do every June, but in the last several years, I've also contracted out with different groups uh, and taken them. One of the most interesting uh, was a group called the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom, it's a collection of Muslim and Jewish women who are committed to um, to peace and reconciliation and understanding. But the one, I, the one that I, the main one that I do, 
probably is about 25, 2,600 miles by the time it's done. You know, we hit Greensboro, North Carolina, Atlanta and Albany, Georgia, Selma, Birmingham in Montgomery, Alabama, Memphis and Nashville in Tennessee, Little Rock, Arkansas. And then we end back up south in Canton, Ohio. And so all along the way, they're going to a lot of the, the monuments, memorials and museums to the movement. They're meeting with persons like your mom, like Ruth Harris, one of the uh, original SNCC Freedom singers, Rip Patton, one of the Freedom Riders out of Nashville, Joanne Bland uh, in Selma, Alabama, just, just to name a few. And that's probably been one of the more difficult things now in the 18 years. So blessed that the people that we've met, but it becomes painful and difficult as we lose a lot of these veterans, as we lose these voices, either because some have passed on or we're all getting older uh, and some are just not, are not physically able to meet with groups anymore. And that takes a different kind of that kind of turn because I mean, I know I keep saying family, but it's like, you know, when I go to Montgomery, you know, Mrs. Carr, Johnny Carr, it's like grandma to me. Yeah. And, and Montgomery is not the same city for me now when I go. But, you know, that combination of the people and the and the sites that we see just really make it powerful and impactful. And so, you know, I mentioned, you know, that 25, 2600 mile journey ends in Canton, Ohio. And so sometimes people say to me, Canton, Ohio, what are you doing? Going to the Football Hall of Fame? And I'm like, no. Or they're like, why is the tour ending in Ohio? That's not, that's not the South. And it goes back, you know, to that earlier conversation about racism is not just the South, down South, up South. Exactly. In Canton, Ohio, we end our journey at a, at a place called Clearview Golf Course. And Clearview is the only golf course uh, in the United States designed, built, owned, and operated by an African-American fellow by the name of Dr. William Powell, a World War II vet uh, who has since passed on, grew up in, in Ohio, the grandson of slaves, went off, fought for his country, comes back to his home and is barred from playing golf in in you know many of the courses right there in, in his very community. What I love about Dr. Powell, uh, he used to say he didn't get bitter, he got better. And so they wouldn't let him play uh, their courses. So he built his own. That's, and that that's is literally what he did. When I say he, I don't mean he and a team. He built his own course, you know, raised his family there. His son, Larry, is the current golf course superintendent there. His daughter, Renee, is the course pro. And Renee is the second African-American woman never played professionally on the LPGA tour. You're uh, kidding. She after Al- no, she came after Althea Gibson and Renee played the longest. Renee played 13 seasons uh, on the tour. And this is literally Canton, Ohio in the backyard of, of, of my former hometown of Beaver Falls. Wow. And I tell people, I think, yeah, of course we go there because I love golf. Anybody that knows me knows I love golf. I said, but it's a representation of so much more. It's a representation of that spirit of the movement of he didn't get better, he got better. It's a, a representation that guess what? This Jim Crow thing we're talking about, again, was down south and was up south. But it was every sphere of life and death. And, you know, and so when we think about golf, that's a sphere of life that has, you know, implications for power and influence and access. And and if people were denied opportunities then and now through through sports, I mean, it's just, it's a perfect representation of that. And for so many people that go on the trip, they're not golfers. And so if I'm going to expose them to a sports chapter in the journey, I could think of no better chapter, no better place. That's so interesting. And I wasn't aware of that 
at all. I mean, I wasn't aware that you took your trip there. I wasn't aware of the story. I'm so enlightened. And on top of that, my husband has over, the, I mean, he's all, he's played golf for many years, but over the last year, it's kind of fanatical. I'm all so right. excited to tell him about that. But you know, what's interesting too, is just when you think of desegregating sports, there are a couple sports that right. stick out. And even to this day, I will say that my husband experiences some very interesting encounters on the golf course. There is such a rich history of African-Americans in golf, not just in terms of it being a place of of, uh, of segregation where we were kept out of, but also our inventions and contributions to the game. Uh, and and you're, you're absolutely right. You know, that very present reality. There's a golf course uh, around the corner from my house where my wife and I moved about a year ago. And when we first got down there, we, we said, oh, well, that's a course that I, you know, I, I could probably join. My wife has clubs. She doesn't play a whole lot. But I could join and, you know, then we could have dinner there on the balconies on a Friday evening or something, right? Mm -hmm. We weren't down there but a couple months and news was released that there were a group of African-American women playing at that course who were rudely removed from the course. The cops were called on them by the owners of that course and it became a big... Is that uh, the national story? That was that national story about the five black women. Yeah, that's around the corner from my house, Spirit. Wow. Uh, So I was like, well, won't be joining there. (laughs) Wow. Uh, but it lets you know that, that that like I said, you know, like that 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 uh, that that kid from my baseball story who I had to mm-hmm. pound on there a little bit. Lets you know that the persistence of that hate still exists and it comes in a variety of a uh, variety of forms. It's so amazing too because the conversations are never ending just about how to deal with those moments when there's so many I couldn't just begin to name. But if you confront it, then you're abrasive or you're making assumptions. I, I wasn't. There's no way I was. <laughs> All right. What in your 18 years of experience, what is the essence of the experience for the participants? I mean, I'm sure it varies depending on their motivation for joining the trip. I'm sure you have families and organizations. Who is eligible to take the trip, the duration of the trip, and how the logistics work? So the trip uh, itself lasts about nine days. Uh, it is open for for whosoever will. Uh, we get a variety of people, uh, you know, you know, young kids coming with their families to retirees and sort of every age and stage in between. Um, I'll get people who are, you know, going on the trip. You know, since I work at a college. There are a lot of people who have kind of an academic interest. Um, maybe they're working on something themselves, or there may be students traveling as part of a, a study trip or that kind of thing. But I'll also get people who uh, have an interest in the history. They don't know much about it, but they like traveling by bus and have never been to that part of the country and want to go to that part of the country by bus. And hey, maybe I'll you know learn something along the way. And it's a cross section uh, as well in terms of uh, ethnicity. You know, if there's any challenge that I get, it's that sometimes I have some African-Americans who will say to me, well, I don't need to go on that. I know this because I'm black. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Then I'll have some whites who are like, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to go on this because that's not my history. And I'm like, no, it's American history. It's U.S. history, which is your history. Right. And uh, so they're like, oh, OK, 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 I can I can participate. Um and as far as, you know, what people's expectations are coming in, you know, I think I think they can vary. But what I think people walk away with is there's some great books that are written about this movement. But as you well know, there's nothing like being in those in those places and with those people. It just has a way of making this history come alive. Uh, and you realize it's not as distant um, as we sometimes like to, you know, like to believe or 
or think. And so, you know, I, I tell people, I dare you to, to go to Selma and walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and then go back to wherever you're from and not be registered to vote and not know about who's running and what the issues are in your community and to not run for office yourself. Right. Yeah. Now, I want to be very real, though. There are always those, those people who have the experience and miss the meaning. You know, they mm-hmm. go on a trip like this and buy all the souvenirs and take the photos and then aren't changed a bit in their behavior. Fortunately, my experience down through the years is those folk have tended to be in the minority. So many more uh, are changed and transformed. I mean, I look at my own household at, at my son. He's been going on these since he was five and he's 19 now. And, uh, you know, I grew up learning about these people. He grew up knowing these people. (laughs) That is so amazing. Do you notice like an evolution of his understanding because he started so early or what is it like? the, The way he carries himself, what he expects of himself and, and how he expects that others will treat him. You know, We were blessed uh, a couple of years ago uh, when he graduated high school. uh, It was the 30th anniversary of my wife and I also graduated from that same high school, that same district. I had been a uh, member of the board of school directors. uh, And so I was asked and with his permission, with my son's permission, I was the commencement speaker for his his graduation. And all of that made me proud enough. Um, But what really made me proud uh, was that he was his school's valedictorian. Uh, he was and is um, the first African-American valedictorian in the history of that school district. Um, but what I like about him and what I love about him um, is, and, he, and I don't know if he ever heard me say this, uh, but, but we echo one another. In fact, our, our commencement speeches echoed one another. I say he copied off me. But, <laughs> but, but I say to him, and he says as well, you know, oh, I, I know that I was the first. African-American valedictorian, but that doesn't mean I was the smartest African-American to ever come through here. That meant that I had the, the, the best opportunity, that there I were other people feels. who could have been and should have been first. And, and I don't rest on the fact that, that I'm, I'm the first. It's not about being the first. It's about all those that follow you. Um, and that's the same way I was with, you know, even going on to college. I was the first in my family to go to college, not because I was the smartest, but because I had the opportunity. And how does then that opportunity open the door for others? And so after I went, then my siblings know not only is this what we can do, um, in some ways this becomes an expectation. And so every sibling after me uh, went on to went on to some form of higher education. Some of them have multiple degrees. I love that, and I'm 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 seeing the the commencement speech in my mind, and I'm like, I've got to get my hands on that. Do you have a copy of it? <laughs> it's you know, you know what? This is the interesting. I don't think the district actually records it, but my my even my brother and my sister has it on their did. Facebook page, and they recorded they recorded uh, I think both of our speeches. I was like, um, okay, Doctor yeah. King, it was <laughs> absolutely like spectacular. Oh my oh, goodness, that must thanks. have been like one of the proudest moments. I mean, uh, there's you know, so many. It, it was. It was. And, you know, I was surprised that I got through it without crying, but I think I was just like so caught up in the moment. I didn't have time to think about, you know, crying or any of that. It was just, you were just so, so, uh, so proud. So proud. And he's your reflection. 
Yeah, yeah, but you know, I, I look at him too, and I'm like, well, he doesn't look like his mama. <laughs> 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 but but it's funny too, though. You know, people sometimes think, well, his dad's a professor, so that's kind of where he gets his smarts from. And I'm like, no, he gets it from his mama. <laughs> uh, I I I got degrees in communication because I like to talk. Uh, you know, and I was like, oh, you can get a degree for that? Okay. nice that's so wonderful i mean honestly i feel like we could do a whole podcast on your doctoral dissertation and findings can you give an overview of that as well as your current role at messiah college the summary of my dissertation it was about the selma to montgomery march uh and i wanted to know in the broader sense uh, of civil rights tourism why do people go to these spaces and places and what do they learn when they get there. Now, I could have studied more broadly civil rights tourism, but I'd probably still be writing that thing. So I had to pick a place that taught or told a story in multiple ways. And the first time I visited Selma, it just did that for me. And so what I wanted to think about was, you know, how do the narratives, how did the stories of this past get told on the commemorative landscape in Selma? And one of the the memorials that jumped out to me, there's a 12 stone memorial there just off of the Edmund Pettus Bridge um, that has the, the words from scripture. Um, you know, in the future, when your children shall ask you, what do these stones mean? Um, you know, you will tell them how you made it over. And so I just started looking at the landscape of Selma and said, what are the different ways that we're telling the children the story? And so we tell it to them through the museums that are there. We tell it to them through the annual days like Jubilee. We tell it to them through the sites that are marked like Brown Chapel Church and the Selma to Montgomery Trail. And we tell it through, to them through a lot of the oral histories. And so my dissertation looked at how individually and collectively all of those different forms of storytelling work together to tell the, the larger story of why why Selma matters. That's awesome. And so your current role, because yeah. it's really awesome that you're able to fuse a lot of your passions with your academic scholarship. Yeah, when people find out that I that I work at a college and that I'm tied to the civil rights movement, they assume I'm a history professor. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I've always had a passion for history. Probably the reason I didn't pursue it as an undergrad is I thought the only thing you could do with a history degree was teach. And I did not want to ever be a teacher. We see how that worked out. But um, so my role here, I have a dual appointment at Messiah College. I'm um, a member of the communication uh, faculty. And so I teach courses, everything from interpersonal, intercultural, public speaking uh, and so forth. Uh, but then I'm also in senior administration um, as what they call the special assistant to the president and provost for diversity affairs. And what I do in that role is I help the institution think intentionally and strategically uh, about our institution-wide commitments to diversity, inclusive excellence, and reconciliation. I always loved building puzzles as a kid. And that's really what this role allows me to do is, is to help the institution build our puzzle to be a more inclusively excellent and reconciled campus. And there are some days uh, we move that needle in, in, in large ways, and other days it seems like the, the, the needle barely moves or maybe it's going backward. But the joy of waking up every day um, saying, how can I you know, lend my skills and talents to, to the broader conversation of helping people to live uh, in community uh, is, is exciting, uh, exciting for me. How I got connected to Messiah College, though, actually came through the civil rights tour. There was someone who had gone on the tour in years past uh, and had a connection to Messiah and came back and was sharing about this trip they had been on. And 
it eventually made its way, the conversation made its way up to the desk of the president. And she remembered me when, from when I was a brand new faculty member earlier in my career at another institution. Uh, I made a call just out to anybody, you know, help a brother. I'm, I'm new to teaching and I don't know what I'm doing. And she was a communication faculty at one of the schools I called and, and we hit it off and she helped me uh, early in my career, but then we lost touch. And then this is how we got reconnected. She recruited me through having uh, employees of the college go on the tour. And so now, you know, eight years later, I've had well over a hundred of my colleagues at this institution who've gone on this tour and they come from across the campus. So I've got all of these allies who get it, who understand why not just this specific specific history matters, but why the larger lessons uh, of civil rights movement, citizenship and social justice and reconciliation matter. And so they helped me in, in my work here at the institution to, to help us all live, live more as community. That's extraordinarily powerful to have that built-in foundation and to have that common ground, no pun intended. <laughs> but, um, I was going to say, you, you, hit, you hit it exactly. <laughs> um, and also talk about puzzle. Wow, that's, that's yeah. wonderful for that to all fit together so nicely. I'm just trying to hold on for the ride. (laughs) I saw a keynote speech online of yours, and you said the theme of your talk was eyes forward looking back, as you so eloquently framed it. Can you elaborate on that? Sure, sure. You know, people often ask me, why do you spend so much time talking about the past, talking about the past, let it go, get over it. And uh, first of all, I, I let them know that the, the, the past is not that distant, uh, you know, as we like to pretend, uh, that the past has a lot of relevance uh, for us today. And one of the reasons we keep tripping up over uh, some of the stuff that we trip up over in society, whether it's debates about blackface or admissions to institutions or the list goes on and on is because we've not understood and we've not tried to connect, you know, with our past. I think they said it was Mark Twain that said uh, the past may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Mm. And when I look at what goes on in this current historical moment, I see a whole lot of rhyming uh, in the present historical moment. You know, when Black Lives Matter emerged as a as a movement, um, to me, it was echoes of the I am a man. You know, that was the hashtag then. Right. Um, that even the ways we talk about social protest and what we deem as acceptable now, uh, you know, was not acceptable at the time it was actually going on. You know, you have people who say, well, these these people out here protesting in the streets, they need to be in the spirit of Dr. King. Dr. King would never take a, a highway. And I'm thinking, did you forget what the Selma to Montgomery march was? Exactly. You know? And I mean, just just countless examples like that. I mean, you look at the ways in which many in this present day and age want to demonize Colin Kaepernick, but will now finally, because it's 50th anniversary time, lift up uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And we forget that at the time of of, of their action, they were demonized, uh, you know, as, as well. And so, you know, there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of uh, rhyming in that history. I'm reading Silent Gesture by Tommy Smith right now. So that's there you a go. really powerful image in, in, in comparison. This has been an absolutely fabulous conversation. I feel so full and rich and I'm actually 
could talk for hours with you. You're so fascinating and you have such a deep, deep wealth of knowledge and expertise and analysis. It's so wonderful. Can you tell our Roots of the Spirit listeners how they can become involved in your movement? Sure. Anybody that's got an interest uh, in uh, the returning to the roots of Civil Rights Tour, uh, you can find me uh, online. Um, I'm at Messiah College. Email address tallen at messiah.edu. We're actually this year sold out. We've been sold out for for a couple months now, which is a good problem to have. That's great. Um, but but I also know you know that not everybody can get away and 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 go with us in June or there may be groups out there that want to plan their own thing like I said you know I'm 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 always up to to work with people to do that as well uh, and if you don't travel with me and if you don't travel with somebody else know that there are all these 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 spaces and places out there some marked and well known and others unmarked and and I encourage people to find a way to learn that story we call our tour returning to the roots of civil rights and we do that intentionally so that when you return to wherever you're from. You know, I encourage people to ask ask questions about what was going on in my community during this time frame. What was going on in my family during this time frame? And get those those family stories and, and experiences in history. But don't just stop and think about the past. Ask yourself what's going on right here in the present. What's happening in my community right now? What are the issues that 50 years from now? Um, you know, my grandkids will say, hey, where were you when that was going on and what were you doing? Because, you know, we always like to play those games. Well, I was around then. I would have done this. Well, you're around now. Exactly. This is history right now, right here, right yep. now. Dr. Allen, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and I can't thank you enough. I'm so inspired. Oh, thank, thank you, my sister. And we'll definitely be talking real, real soon. And hopefully to see you even sooner. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.